1: In his majority opinion, in the 1989 case of Texas versus Johnson, Justice William Brennan wrote, If there is a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment, it is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds the idea itself offensive or disagreeable. That's a big claim. Was that really the bedrock principle of the First Amendment in 1791 when it was ratified? There might be other candidates for that honor, beginning with the principle of federalism that Congress shall make no law bridging the freedom of speech, but that states would settle on policy in this area as they saw fit. But even that might be too easy, since Congress quickly turned around and passed the Sedition Act a decade later that made it a crime to criticize the government or bring into contempt its institutions or officers. There's a long tradition of congressional laws and policies that prohibit speech precisely because of the content of that speech. The Sedition Act was controversial, of course, It was passed by the Federalists in power, and the opposition party of Madison and Jefferson thought it was clearly a violation of the First Amendment. But we saw a similar law during World War I, and plenty of convictions of people for saying things that were deemed to be disloyal or subversive, usually socialists critical of the war effort. I think it's fair to say that over the sweep of the 20th century, the Supreme Court became more and more protective of speech, distancing itself from that earlier tradition more and more committed to the idea that government policy that incidentally restricts speech must be neutral with respect to the content of that speech. That bedrock principle of content neutrality was one that the court grew into over time, and we see the court really wrestling with and clarifying this doctrine in the cases of Texas versus Johnson and RAV versus City of St. Paul just a few years later in 1992. So let's take each one of those in turn. Gregory Lee Johnson was, and still is apparently, a political activist, a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party USA. During the 1984 Republican National Convention, he went to the front of Dallas City Hall, doused an American flag in kerosene, and then lit it on fire. For that, he was sentenced to a year in prison under a Texas statute that prohibited the desecration of the American flag. The first question for the court was whether Johnson's actions counted as speech for the purpose of First Amendment protection the justices had little trouble saying that it did. Like O'Brien burning his draft card on the Boston courthouse steps in the case we talked about previously, Johnson's burning of the American flag at City Hall was clearly designed to communicate a message. It was what the Supreme Court has called symbolic speech. And so like O'Brien, the court asks whether there's a substantial government interest that's unrelated to the suppression of speech. And here there's not. The whole point of the statute is the suppression of action that communicates a message of antipathy to the flag and to what it represents. Coinciding with the Republican National Convention, it was meant to communicate disapproval of the Republican Party and of Ronald Reagan's renomination as president. The government had no interest here that was unrelated to the speech itself. It wasn't like there was a drought in the area and the government had a general burn ban in effect. And then Johnson was in trouble for starting a fire, but the trouble was unrelated to the message. In this case, the message was the trouble. And in fact, federal law designated burning a flag as the preferred way to respectfully retire it when its condition was such that it could no longer be a fit emblem to display. So if Johnson had privately burned the flag as a respectful way to dispose of it, he wouldn't have been in any violation of the law. Preventing him from disrespecting the flag in a symbolic act is the whole point of the statute. It's all about the message. And so the court goes through and asks whether there is some other reason why the government should be able to suppress Johnson's speech in this instance, and they tick through some of the precedents we've already discussed. His speech wasn't directed to or likely to incite imminent lawless action, as the standard from Brandenburg v. Ohio would have it. His speech didn't constitute fighting words like what we saw in Chaplinsky. As Brennan Riley notes, No reasonable onlooker would have regarded Johnson's generalized expression of dissatisfaction with the policies of the federal government as a direct personal insult or an invitation to exchange fisticuffs. It wasn't obscene. He's not libeling anyone. But what he's doing is something offensive to many. He's destroying the American flag, a symbol of nationhood, national unity, and honor for those in the uniformed services. And the lesson the court takes from these previous cases is another principle that the government may not prohibit expression simply because it disagrees with its message, as Brennan writes. And he concludes with a beautiful line. We do not consecrate the flag by punishing its desecration, for in doing so we dilute the freedom that this cherished emblem represents. Before moving on too fast, though, let me complicate things and give the dissenting justices their due. It isn't exactly true that the government had made a certain message illegal, Johnson was part of a protest of the 1984 Republican National Convention in Dallas. He verbally said all sorts of things that were critical of the United States government. He said, Ronald Reagan, killer of the hour, perfect example of U.S. power. And he said, America, red, white, and blue, we spit on you. You stand for plunder. You will go under. He could have said anything he wanted about the American flag. He said all sorts of things that were critical of the president, of the government. He wasn't in trouble for that it was the act of destroying a symbol that was illegal. Four of the justices dissented in this case. Chief Justice Rehnquist with Justices White and O'Connor talked eloquently about the meaning of the flag and what it represents. And then they noted that the federal government in 48 of the 50 states made it a crime to publicly burn the flag. And then, alluding to Chaplinsky and Brandenburg, the justices said that the public burning of the American flag by Johnson is no essential part of any exposition of ideas. And at the same time, it had a tendency to incite a breach of the peace, they said. Johnson was free to make any verbal denunciation of the flag that he wished. Indeed, he was free to burn the flag in private. He could publicly burn other symbols of the government or effigies of political leaders. He did lead a march through the streets of Dallas and conducted a rally in front of the Dallas City Hall. He engaged in a die-in to protest nuclear weapons. He shouted out various slogans during the march. For none of these acts was he arrested or prosecuted. It was only when he proceeded to burn an American flag that he violated the Texas statute. And as with fighting words, Rehnquist concludes for the dissenters, so with flag burning for the purposes of the First Amendment. Justice Stevens, dissenting separately, wrote to highlight his own view that the case actually had nothing to do with the message being communicated. The concept of desecration does not turn on the substance of the message the actor intends to convey, Stevens said but rather on whether those who view the act will take serious offense. This was not about disagreeable ideas, but disagreeable conduct, according to Stevens, and for that reason he would have upheld the statute. If the ideas of liberty and equality are worth fighting for, Stevens concludes, and our history demonstrates that they are, he says, it cannot be true that the flag that uniquely symbolizes their power is not itself worthy of protection from unnecessary desecration. But the court's majority opinion here, overturning laws against flag-burning passed by Congress and by 48 states, leaves us with a question. How far must we take this emphasis on content neutrality, this bedrock principle? Are there any symbols that we could prevent because of the message those symbols convey? How about a Nazi swastika, or a burning cross, or some other symbol historically associated with genocide or racial violence and terror? That's the issue that comes up just three years later in the 1992 case of R.A.V. versus City of St. Paul, Minnesota. The letters R.A.V. here are the initials of a teenager who burned a cross on the lawn of a black family in Minneapolis. For that, he was charged with violating a city ordinance that made it a crime to place on public or private property, a symbol, object, appellation, characterization, or graffiti including but not limited to a burning cross, or a Nazi swastika, which one knows or has reasonable grounds to know arouses anger, alarm, or resentment in others on the basis of race, color, creed, religion, or gender. And this is an interesting, challenging, and hard case, and it gets a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court that the statute was unconstitutional. Now, it remains illegal, of course, to destroy property, to vandalize, to litter, to threaten other people. The court's not saying that these kids had a constitutional right to burn a cross in someone else's yard. But what they were saying was that this particular statute, making it a separate and additional crime to burn a cross when it is reasonable to think that doing so would arouse anger, alarm, or resentment on the basis of race, color, creed, religion, or gender, that that statute was itself unconstitutional. Justice Scalia explained why in his opinion announcement for the court.
0: Just about two years ago, in the pre-dawn hours of June 21st, 1990, the petitioner R.A.V., a juvenile, and several other teenagers allegedly assembled a crudely made cross by taping together broken chair legs. They then allegedly burned the cross inside the fenced yard of a black family that lived across the street from the house where the petitioner was staying. Although this conduct could have been punished under any of a number of laws carrying significant penalties, One of the two provisions under which the Respondent City of St. Paul chose to charge Petitioner was the St. Paul Bias-Motivated Crime Ordinance, which prohibits the display of a symbol which one knows or has reason to know, quote, arouses anger, alarm, or resentment in others on the basis of race, color, creed, religion, or gender. We conclude that the ordinance is facially unconstitutional because it prohibits speech on the basis of the subjects the speech addresses. The First Amendment generally prohibits government from proscribing speech or even expressive conduct because of disapproval of the ideas expressed. There are, however, a few limited categories of speech, such as obscenity, defamation, and fighting words that have traditionally been subject to regulation on the basis of content. Although we have sometimes said in our cases that these categories of expression are, quote, not within the area of constitutionally protected speech, close quote, all that such statements mean is that these areas of speech can consistently with the First Amendment be regulated because of their constitutionally proscribable content, that is, because of their obscenity, defamation, etc. Not, it does not mean that they are categories of speech entirely invisible to the Constitution so that they may may be made the vehicles for content discrimination unrelated to their distinctively proscribable content. Thus, the government may not regulate fighting words based on hostility or favoritism towards a protected message that the fighting words contain, just as a uh, city council, for example, could not prohibit only that obscenity which criticizes the city council. Regulation of fighting words and other proscribable categories of speech may, however, be under-inclusive, addressing some offensive instances and leaving other equal offensive instances alone, so long as the selective prescription is not based on content, or there is no realistic possibility that regulation of ideas is afoot. In light of these principles, we conclude that the ordinance, even as narrowly construed by the State Supreme Court, is facially unconstitutional Because it imposes special prohibitions on those speakers who express views on the disfavored subjects of race, color, creed, religion, or gender.
1: There's an important nuance here. Scalia and the court say this. Sure, you can prohibit certain classes of disfavored speech, such as obscenity and fighting words. But you still can't have a content-based restriction on those classes of disfavored speech. So even if, for the sake of argument, we agree that all of the actions at issue here are constitutionally prescribable fighting words, still the statute is unconstitutional because it only prescribes those fighting words that cause resentment or anger on the basis of specific characteristics. Scalia's example is this. One could hold up a sign saying that all anti-Catholic bigots are misbegotten, but not that all papists are, for that would insult and provoke violence on the basis of religion. St. Paul has no such authority to license one side of a debate to fight freestyle while requiring the other to follow Marquis of Queensbury rules, an old code of accepted rules for boxing for those who didn't get the cultural reference here. So even when a category of speech is constitutionally prescribable, it can't be singled out for prescription because of its content. So we'll pick up this idea of content neutrality and the question of what can or cannot be targeted for suppression in the next episode, with a series of important cases by the Roberts Court over the last decade.